Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Butterflies have cultural significance for many Native Americans. One iconic species of butterfly, migrating monarchs, is now officially listed as endangered as researchers document a major decline in their numbers in recent years. Habitat loss and pesticides are the main threats to monarch populations. Some tribes are working to help reverse the trend. Join us for a discussion about monarch butterfly connections and conservation after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Biden administration on Thursday announced more than $140 million in awards to bring high-speed affordable internet to tribal communities in New Mexico through the Tribal Broadband Connectivity Program. Vice President Kamala Harris says she's spoken with tribal leaders across the country about the need for high-speed internet. Harris says the administration is committed to making investments in Indian country. So our administration's vision is to connect all Native communities with the internet, and with the opportunity that comes along with access to affordable internet. The opportunity to live healthier, happier, and more prosperous lives. And we will continue to fight every day to make that vision a reality. The Pueblo of Isleta was awarded $26 million in funding. Isleta Governor Vernon Abeda says the pandemic heightened the need for the internet as schools, healthcare, and jobs went online. He says internet service is expensive for community members, and although the Pueblo is about a 15-minute drive from Albuquerque, service is unreliable. So through all of this uh, infrastructure money that we're getting, we we will be able to provide these types of services to our community for education, health care, and economic development. And the ability to have some programs work from home, have small businesses work from home, uh, using the broadband that we can provide for our communities. According to the administration, more awards will be announced this month for tribes across the country, including in Alaska, Nebraska, South Dakota, Arizona, and California. Boot camps are bringing people together to learn about tribal broadband. This week, one was held at the University of Oregon in Eugene. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. At the Ford Alumni Center, about 50 people watch presentations on network development, funding, and cable crimping and splicing. Matthew Ballard is with the Shinnecock Indian Nation based in Long Island, New York. He says historically, Native people have been left behind in technological initiatives, hampering tasks. Basic things like paying bills, interacting with our governments, being able to start businesses and reach our customers. So it is important for tribes to be here to kind of keep on the bleeding edge of technology and make sure we're not falling further and further behind. Matthew Rantanen is a Cree tribal member and boot camp organizer. Our biggest goal is to bring people together because they become a human network, right? We were talking about broadband networking, but we have now a human network of people that they can rely upon for resources, troubleshooting and things, and they know that they're not doing this alone. The pandemic has especially driven tribes' needs for broadband. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. 
Last week, the Nez Perce tribe, the Spokane tribe, and the Coeur d'Alene tribe and conservation groups made an agreement with the Biden administration to continue a pause in litigation over dams on the Snake and Columbia Rivers. Aaron Bolton has more. The groups had previously agreed to pause the litigation over restoring salmon and other native fish species to the two rivers. The Biden administration last week announced a commitment to collaborate with Pacific Northwest tribes to restore fish populations while also delivering hydropower to the region. According to a release by Earth Justice, the agreement will pause the lawsuit for another year, but any of the parties involved in the litigation can make a motion to resume legal action. Tribes and conservation groups say they will do so if the Biden administration doesn't take action in a timely manner. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. California Native Americans will share their culture with lawmakers and the public at the state capitol in Sacramento on Monday, the third annual California Indian Cultural Awareness Event at Capitol Park is sponsored by Native American Assembly member James Ramos. Native cultures from around the state will be celebrated. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB who support this program. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The iconic orange and black butterflies so many of us see in our gardens is in trouble. The monarch butterfly migrates from southern Canada through the United States to their wintering grounds in central Mexico. Along the way, their fragile beauty captures the attention of those they come across, including many tribes that incorporate them into their art and culture. Populations fluctuate year to year, but their numbers have plummeted so drastically in the past two decades that an international conservation organization declared the species endangered. The designation by the International Union for Conservation of Nature highlights factors that threaten monarchs, including habitat destruction, climate change, and pesticides. We'll talk with native conservationists coming up about what it takes to reverse the trend. And you're welcome to join the conversation. Are monarch butterflies significant to your people? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's learn more about the monarch butterfly from our first guest on the line in Leonard, Oklahoma. Jane Breckenridge is the director of TEAM, the Tribal Environmental Action for Monarchs. She's enrolled with the Muskogee Creek Nation and Yuchi. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, thank you for putting this focus on monarch butterflies today. They, they need all the help they can get. Of course, Jane. We're happy to do that. And a new species placed on an international endangered list, the monarch butterfly. 
What's going on, Jane? How are these beautiful orange and black insects at risk? Oh, you know, just how are they not at risk? I mean, is it is a better question? So, um, you know, just to kind of have an idea, as you said, the population does fluctuate every year, but thinking about um, that migratory population and that's so iconic east of the Rockies, in the fall of 1996, you had over 900 million monarch butterflies that were making that journey to the overwintering grounds in Mexico. By the fall of 2013, that number was down to about 40 million. So, I mean, it is, yeah, this, you know, this, this is for real. I mean, this is catastrophic. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, even just not looking at the numbers or the science or the data, we all see it. I mean, you know, if you're of a certain age, and I'm 57, uh, you know, when I was a kid, we saw those butterflies coming through. We saw them everywhere, uh, you know, throughout the season. And, you know, not only do I not see them anymore out, um, you know, but but I hear this also from our elders, our tribal elders. It's, you know, they're disappearing. And um, and it's just, it's it's something that if if we lose this migration, if we lose this species, it's on us because we know what's happening. We know what the trouble is. We know some of the things we can do to fix it. And, you know, monarchs, they are special. I mean, all butterflies are miraculous and special, but monarchs really do occupy um, a special place in the miraculous chosen ones. Um, every year the monarchs overwinter, um, the eastern migrating population, they overwinter um, there in um, Mexico um, at their overwintering grounds. In the spring, when they leave their, you know, period of semi-dormancy, they will move north, and the first uh, the first returning migrants have to find milkweed in Oklahoma and Texas to lay their eggs, and then um, subsequent generations push on north. Um, northward movement stops after about June 10th, and then they stay where they are. But some of those uh, migrating monarchs will go as far north as southern Canada, um, and so. Typically, it's four generations, four sacred number for many many of us Native people, sacred for the monarchs too. But the really cool and amazing part happens in the fall because starting about August 10th at the northern latitudes, these these monarchs, you know, tens of millions to hundreds of millions of them, are going to make this incredible return journey down there. But it's not really a return journey because none of them has ever been to the overwintering grounds. These are the great-grandchildren of the monarchs that left in the spring. So you've got hundreds of millions of butterflies that are going to complete a journey of up to 3,000 miles. And when they get to that overwintering grounds, even to find it, in totality, it's less than 10 acres. And yet these butterflies, these miraculous, beautiful monarchs, are going to defy all of those odds and somehow... All these butterflies with a sense of purpose are going to find their way to this little, little, little tiny area in Mexico, way up in the transvolcanic mountains, 11,000 feet. Um, it is. It's nothing short of a miracle. And um, if we lose that, it's again, it's it's on us because, you know, it's one thing to sit there and feel sad about the monarchs disappearing. It's another thing to actually get up off the couch and go do something about it. And that's what I'm hoping um, people like you in this show today can encourage people to do, to everybody go do their part. Well, Jane, that drop-off, you mentioned 900,000 down to, I mean, it just fell off a cliff. It's just, uh, yeah. I, it's just hard to fathom. So in addition to being these amazing insects, beautiful insects, what do they contribute to the environment that we need to be mindful of? So uh, they are pollinators, um, for one thing. You know, um, they aren't the, the best of pollinators, but they're definitely pollinators. 
but they're also an important part of the food chain. So um, food chain, food web. So for every every female monarch can lay two to four hundred eggs. Of those eggs, less than five percent are going to make it to be adult butterflies. The rest are going to um, be eaten by you know parasites, yeah, predators, all sorts of things. So um, so they're an important part of the of the food chain. Um, Additionally, they're also, and I think this cannot be stressed enough, they're the canary in the coal mine for what's happening to all of our pollinators, particularly our native bees, is uh, they're disappearing just as quickly, but they're doing it silently. We notice when 900 million beautiful, gorgeous orange and black butterflies disappear from the sky, but those other pollinators, other pollinators are also in terrible, terrible trouble, and they're disappearing, they're just doing it more quietly in a less showy way. If the monarch can bring us together, everything that we do to help the monarch helps all those other critters and insects in trouble. Um, you know, reducing your pesticide use, replanting native plants, planting good pollinator plants, rethinking your mowing, all those things that can make a difference. Everything we do to help save monarchs is not only going to help save all those other critters, it's going to help save ourselves too. Now, Jane, your organization, the Tribal Environmental Action for Monarchs, you do a lot of work in Oklahoma. And what is it specifically about Oklahoma that draws monarchs to the state? Um, so Oklahoma has a, a critical role to play along the monarch migration. Those migrants, as I said a minute ago, uh, those returning migrating butterflies that leave Mexico, they really do have to find that milkweed in Oklahoma or Texas. So um, normally, a monarch butterfly uh, does not live that long, about two to three weeks in its adult state. Um, but remember, it's you know also an egg for you know five to seven days. Uh, it's uh, a caterpillar for another about you know ten to fourteen days, and it's a chrysalis for another five to seven days. So it's got a, you know different things. But as an adult butterfly, normally it's about two to three weeks. That generation that overwinters in Mexico, um, that super generation they call them. Uh, they, they go into what they call reproductive diapause, and they are going to be able to extend that life lifespan all the way from, you know, from late summer, early fall, until through, you know, early to mid-spring. But it's finite. I mean, all, all organisms are finite, um, so they have to find that milkweed in Oklahoma or Texas. And so... Uh, depending on the prevailing winds and storms, um, some years uh, an awful lot of them land in Oklahoma. Some of them have to. Some years it's more Texas. But uh, we have we have nearly eradicated milkweed here. Um, Oklahoma once had beautiful native prairies, um, and we have 12 distinct ecosystems here. We're second highest um, in of the United States uh, for a state having you know different distinct distinct ecoregions. But after the Dust Bowl in the 30s, we underwent grassland conversion here. And so, uh, you know, well-meaning folks got rid of our native prairie grasses and um, replanted this with non-native grasses. And along the way, we also, we've got cattle ranching, you know, all sorts of different agricultural production. Um, most of the milkweed in the wild, so much of it has been eliminated. So, um, so we're trying to get that back, and that's the important part in the um, spring. But the other important part of why Oklahoma um, matters a lot is when those butterflies are on the return migration, they're all going to funnel down through Oklahoma on the way to Mexico. Um, you know, if you look at the map, you can see them literally, they're, they're converging down and it's narrowing into a funnel. Uh, the majority of them do go through Oklahoma. 
And not only do they have to be able to get nectar resources to fuel up, you know, enough to make a journey of, you know, 3,000 miles flying or 2,000 miles, um, depending on where they're coming from, but they have to put on enough fat resources to live all winter long. They will not feed during that long winter um, when they're roosting in the OML fir forest. And so they have to put on those fat resources, otherwise they won't make it through the winter. So if they're coming through Oklahoma and there's no nectar, if they're just seeing a sea of non-native grasses and asphalt and, you know, cattle pastures that are all chemically treated, um, there's, you know, there's not going to be any food. You know, where are they going to find something to eat mm -hmm. um, to put on those fat resources to make it all the way down? So. That's that's why you know I, I work in Oklahoma because this is this is where we are and this is where my family's been since you know um, since removal, but it's an important place for the monarchs as well and that's why we set out you know back in whatever fourteen fifteen fourteen after the uh, big crash in the population to really create a monarch migration trail on tribal lands through Oklahoma because um, you know I do think that uh, tribes are the natural leaders on this issue, and um, and so we wanted to do our part. We're speaking now with Jane Breckenridge. She's down in Oklahoma, and she's a conservationist that works closely with monarch butterflies. And after the Dust Bowls in Oklahoma, a series of environmental factors, agricultural processes, lifestyle changes has just completely destroyed the milkweed, which the monarchs use as food to make their migratory journey down to parts of Mexico. So really fascinating conversation. We're going to talk more with Jane here in a minute. And we've got some other guests as well. They're going to talk about monarch butterflies and their impact with Native American culture and art. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's our number. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. We want to hear from some of our listeners today. We'll be right back after this short break. Efforts to try and keep certain books out of schools and public libraries are on the rise. Works by people of color, including Native American authors, are among the main targets. We'll get the Native perspective on the push to limit people's reading lists. That's coming up on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Monarch butterflies, their numbers are shrinking dramatically, and an international conservation group has declared the species endangered. How important are monarch butterflies and other pollinators to the environment? How significant are monarch butterflies in Native cultures? These are just some of the questions we're getting answers for today. If you've got questions of your own, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. 
Once again, 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call. Let's talk more with Jane Breckenridge. She's a conservationist down in Oklahoma. And Jane, your organization, the Tribal Environmental Action for Monarchs, you folks work out of a family farm, uh, your family farm. So is it safe to say that conservationism is a family calling for you? Well, it is. So, um, you, you, so I, I will say, because I think, you know, this is mostly an Indigenous audience here today, is, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to explain to other people, uh, non-Indigenous folks, how how tied culture is to land and the animals that live there. And I think that there's um, a perspective sometimes, you know, an outside perspective about viewing the land as just what you can take from it, but that's not that's not the way I was raised. That's not the way we are. And so um, we're actually really blessed on our uh, on our allotment there, um, which when my grandmother received in 1899 when she was 16 years old, um, and her dad was born on the Trail of Tears during removal from the homelands. But uh, we have 14 acres of true native prairie. It's the last prairie remnant left in Tulsa County of any size. And so for us, you know, being there um, on the farm and standing there and thinking about my grandmother, great-grandmother, who I knew um, being a little girl there, um, thinking about my uh, my grandmother, who I was very, very close to, being born on a log cabin on that property. Uh, my mother is a little girl there staying with her grandmother, you know, no running water, no electricity, and just living so close to nature and those natural rhythms of life. And and now we're uh, being able to, in the 21st century, continue that tradition by creating this as a, a learning center to teach tribes and tribal members what they can do to support pollinators, um, both on tribal lands, at their homes, um, just in general. And uh, so, I, you know, uh, I'm the, whatever, after 123 years, I'm, the, I think, what, the fifth generation um, to be farming there, first to be farming butterflies, but I can't think of a better way to implement the, the same values in a 21st century way. So, uh, yeah, sure. we're just very, very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, really inspiring to hear hear your family tradition there, Jane. And we've actually got a caller on the line that has a question. Claudia is listening on KGLP on the road in Arizona. Claudia, thanks for calling in. Hi, I'm so excited to hear your show today and to hear about the monarchs, and I love that you're talking about this. Um, I lived in Taos for many years, and I had a lot of monarchs coming through, so I have like a personal, they have a personal story to me. Um, but I did want to ask you a couple questions um, about, first of all, uh, I've moved to Texas, but if we were to grow the milkweed, would there be some things or formats of growing that or ways that would help? And what would you suggest? Jane, can you answer that? Uh, questions about fostering milkweed in Texas, tips and yeah, strategies. Right. So tips and strategies. So um, uh, so answer, first of all, yes, please, please do. And, um, and so not only is milkweed uh, really important, obviously, it's the critical thing. And monarch caterpillars can't eat anything else but milkweed. So uh, but it's also a really important nectar plant, native nectar plant, um, for not just uh, monarchs, but all butterflies and all uh, most of our native bees, even hummingbirds, will nectar um, and feed on the flowers of the milkweed when it's in bloom. And it's very drought resistant. So it's a beautiful, wonderful part of the ecosystem. So absolutely plant it. Um, so there are some wonderful resources for you to get seeds or the plants. 
Um, Monarch Watch out of University of Kansas. Uh, Dr. Chip Taylor, the founder of Monarch Watch, was actually uh, the co-founder with me of Tribal Environmental Action for Monarchs, and they've got wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, Monarch Watch conservation specialists that can help you with those resources. You can go to their website, uh, monarchwatch.org. Um, we've worked with Carol Clark down there in Texas, and she's one of the Monarch Watch conservation specialists, and she is probably one of the most knowledgeable people about milkweed I've ever I've ever met. Um, so there's a lot of great resources. We're happy to help you as well. We're just not as well-staffed as they are. Um, but if you go to Tribal Alliance for pollinators.com, which is our website, um, if we can maybe be able to help you out with seeds too. Um, we encourage you just uh, to, you know, plant native um, when you can. And um, But, yeah, even just one little pot of milkweed can make a difference. We've had people like elders, you know, we've given them like a pot of milkweed and they put it on the little patio there. And it's found by the monarchs and it's used. They're in so much trouble. You know, they're just out of resources. They're, uh, they're being starved out of their homelands too. So, um, just bless you and um, go. Monarch Watch can help you. We can help you, but please, uh, please, please pursue it. Claudia, did you have another question? Yeah, I did. What is uh, your interpretation? I mean, I have my own ideas, but what is your interpretation of the quote unquote reason that these migrating monarchs are disappearing? Jane, go ahead. So, okay, so, uh, so it's like most things in life, it's complicated. Uh, primary driver is, I mean, has been thought to be loss of habitat, um, uh, rise of pesticides, you know, some of the obvious ones, you know, the neonics are of personal, a lot of concern to me, neonicotinoids, which are long-acting systemic pesticides um, that people put on a, um, just about everything now when you're buying plants at a large commercial nursery, usually they've been treated with that. Uh, with the... Um, we lose over a million acres of monarch habitat every year just to development, um, just people adding more houses, shopping malls, all that kind of stuff. There's been a terrible problem in the upper Midwest with the, um, and you can see if you overlay the graphs and the data, the rise in the GMO crops, um, you know, the Roundup Ready corn, Roundup Ready uh, soybeans, and particularly as the ethanol boom came in, um, that was unfortunately bad timing when the GMO crops were increasing. So you had Corn at all time sky high, things were being plowed up right defense rows. You had lost millions of acres, came out of conservation reserve programs, and all of those areas were being blasted with aerial sprays um, of aerial or on equipment that broad scale uh, spray of glyphosate, you know, of Roundup. And that, you know, it used to be there was a lot of milkweed habitats in those agricultural areas in the upper Midwest, which are the summer breeding grounds. But those were just devastated um, by the mm -hmm. GMO crops and the rise and everything. So the other driver that people don't talk about a lot, but climate change is, is a huge part of what's happening now. Um, they will not migrate well when those temperatures are too warm in the fall. Um, it throws them out of diapause. Uh, it slows the migration down. Um, there are just a lot of, uh, they do not well do well at these higher temperatures. And again, um, you know, our, our colleagues at Monarch Watch are doing a lot of research into this to try and tease out exactly what that relationship is. But all the preliminary work looks like these rising temperatures are going to be catastrophic for monarch butterflies. So what I would answer to that, since we can't no, no, totally fix it, let's okay. put the habitat back, you know? Sure, sure. Jane, thank you for all that, that great insight and, and all that information about the monarchs and their habitats. 
Let's talk now with Marlena Miles, who is speaking with us from Winona, Minnesota. She's an artist and a designer. She's Spirit Lake, Dakota. Marlena, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Marlena, you incorporate monarch butterflies into your fabric designs. What got you started? Well, when I started to create fabric designs, you know, I was thinking about my friends who create regalia or like ribbon skirts, and a lot of them didn't have native-made designs. You know, it's kind of really non-native people making stereotypical stuff about us that doesn't have any meaning because they don't understand the meaning of the symbols. So I created, you know, started creating fabric designs that have um, our designs in it, but also telling, you know, the meaningful relationship between the natural world and who we are as like indigenous people. Um, I created a recently created a monarch butterfly design that has the milkweed and has like the seed pods. And you can see like the the seeds floating through the air and the monarch butterflies attracted to those plants. And, you know, it creates like the harmony that exists in nature that, you know, there's a reason why milkweed exists you know it has a purpose and the monarch butterflies you know they serve a purpose as pollinators and as human beings we need to be good relatives to both the plant and the insects you know and i think the fabrics allow people to share that knowledge through art through visual beauty um, so that you know it makes it more commonplace to see our connections to the natural world just like a traditional beadwork you know we would be oral medicine, we would feed our connections to animals or the plants. Like even Sitting Bull, he used to pin a monarch butterfly to his hat because that was um, a spirit that he felt connected to because it has like the ability of transformation, um, like the metamorphosis that butterflies grow through. Um, even as like a Lakota medicine man, you know, he understood that power. Transformation. Yeah, that's really, really intriguing. And Marlena, do you think that through your art, and the way you're able to draw in the butterfly and the milkweed as well, do you think that that it's a, a force that can enable and, and motivate people to change the way they live and be more concerned about the environment? Yeah, I do think so. I think um, people are starting to realize that lawns are like a dead zone to the natural world. And if we say things like, we're all related and to be good relatives, if that includes changing our habitats. And um, I think putting it in art is kind of like billboard advertising. Um, a lot of companies spend millions of dollars advertising their brands to us so that we recognize what those brands are, whereas nature doesn't have an advertising company. You know, So I think as Native people, we can educate people about the medicine um, through like um, fashion that we wear. Um, I had a friend recently who said, you know, my fabric, the monarchs, was the first time she felt like creating regalia again after one of her relatives passed away. And, you know, she was mourning that in the mourning period, so she wasn't feeling like creating. And I was telling her, you know, in our culture, the monarch butterfly represents like your ancestors coming to visit you. So when you see a monarch butterfly, you know, that could be your grandmother, that could be your grandfather, you know, coming to see how you're doing. And I think, you know, how she felt like seeing that fabric was a motivator, inspirational for her to create again. You know, I think that spiritual connection was still there. And that's why she felt that way, that her relative wants her to now be able to create. 
We're speaking with Marlena Miles, and she's an artist and a designer up in Minnesota who incorporates not only the Monarch, but also the Milkweed into her fabric designs. We've got another caller on the line, Michael, listening on KNBA in Anchorage, Alaska. Michael, thanks for calling in. Well, good morning. Blessings. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, I probably have a lot to say, but the really, the, I guess the important thing is I would like to know what I and we, my friends and colleagues, as urban dwellers, although in living in Anchorage, we're not very far from nature, if you've ever been here. Uh, you know, you step off the curb and you're pretty much in nature. Uh, what can we do to support the effort to, a, specifically with the monarchs, I don't know if they come this far north, but certainly we have local butterflies and dragonflies and things that I am sure are in danger merely by the fact that we are in 21st century America. So, so what can we do? You know, okay. we, 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 are, we are willing, we, we recognize ourselves as stewards of nature. Uh, Michael, I understand it. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Let's go ahead and let Jane respond to that. Um, Jane, Urban dwellers such as Michael up in Anchorage, Alaska, that have nature right outside their front door, what can they do to to support these monarch butterflies in their habitats? So, so a, a lot, a lot. And, you know, we need everybody on board with this. The scope of the problem is so huge. So um, some things I would encourage uh, you to think about is uh, think about declaring a non-toxic zone. Um, you know, not only, you know, they, you know, Pesticides don't just kill the ugly bugs you don't like. They're they're killing you know they're broad brush. They're killing everything. So, um, declaring a non-toxic zone, not just at your home, but um, but speaking out and being an advocate and uh, you know using and using your voice to speak out for the monarchs who don't have that voice. Whether it's you know at you know tribal complexes, if you know where you shop, uh, you know if if you're a churchgoer at your church, uh, you know at your children's school, at your grandchildren's school, is speak out and get the word out about reducing pesticide use, putting in some plants that support pollinators and butterflies. Um, just a little bit can help. You know, when we think about loss of biodiversity and these animals disappearing, many of them are simply starving to death. And, um, you know, I, to me, that's not acceptable, a world where that, and I know it sounds like it's not to you either. So, Putting out those plants, find out what kind of plants in your area support those butterflies and those bees, and just even putting a few, designating a butterfly garden, again, not just at your home, but, but everywhere. Everybody can do their part. Speak out and be that advocate because it's so badly needed. Thanks, Jane. Marlena, you talked about one person that was really inspired by your designs. What other types of feedback are you getting pe from people who see your designs with, with the butterfly and the milkweed? Well, I think we might have lost Marlena there, so that's not it. Uh, we do have another caller I want to take. I think we have time here. Randa, listening in Santa Fe, New Mexico on KUNM. Randa, you're on the line. Hi. Um, I just want to thank Jane um, and all of you um, deeply for all the work that you're doing for the Monarchs. Um, I had heard that it wasn't just any milkweed that they uh, it's only a certain kind is what i had heard that they uh, use as food 
Um, so I'm curious about that. And also, you just sparked a memory. Um, when I was young and lived in Santa Barbara, um, there were these eucalyptus forests that were part of their, their migratory route. And I just see hundreds and hundreds of them hanging from the trees, uh, resting before they continued on their route. So anyway, thank you for the program. And I'll I'll hang up now and listen to your response. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that call. And, and Jane, we do have to go to break here in about another minute. So if you could respond in a minute, sure. Appreciate it. Okay. So um, milkweeds, the only plant that caterpillars can eat has to be from the, you know, genus of milk, uh, Sclepius, the milkweed. Um, some are better than others um, in terms of their protein content, but there's not just one that supports them. And there's going to be different native varieties uh, that are specific to areas that you live in your climate. Um, but all of the milkweeds are good. Uh, and so that's, it's a little bit of a thing. So I'll, I'll keep that brief. But all of the milkweeds are good. Some are better than others, and um, and we would be happy to help you with that too. If you if you reach out, if not, um, you could also check uh, your uh, in New Mexico. There's a good okay. data plant society. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Appreciate it so much. And folks, we're having a great conversation. We're speaking with Jane Breckenridge. We just spoke with artist Marlena Miles, and we've got a couple more artists for you to talk about their work and monarch butterflies coming up right after the break. So. If you got a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. That is the number to call. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. You're tuned to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about monarch butterflies, and there's still time to join our conversation. Do you see migrating monarchs where you live? Do these migratory insects connect to your culture? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our next guest is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Melanie Kirby is an extension educator at the Institute for American Indian Arts. She's Tortegas, Pueblo, Tiwa, and Apache. Melanie, great to have you on the show. Good morning. Nice to be here. We're learning all about the monarchs and, and other pollinators, and it's interesting to learn that IEIA has a pollinator program. What was the motivation behind its creation? Um, thanks for asking. Yes, we do. So um, I came on board uh, here at IEIA in the land-grant department. Um, we oversee the food gardens um, and uh, have started developing additional projects, especially given COVID and having to switch to um, remote programming for a bit. And so it gave us some time to really reevaluate the landscape here on campus. It's about a, over 140 acres. Um, the buildings itself are on about 10 acres, but then the rest is a lot of scrub juniper land. And the gardens were started here um, a little over 10 years ago, and they've really come a long way over time due to the, the really hardworking efforts 
of um, our program associate and our gardener, but also community members, students, faculty, and staff, and then other guests who have um, participated in various um, gardening projects over the years. But when I came on board, I, I specialize actually in bees. I'm an entomologist <laughs> um, by training, and so um, of course I'm always looking out for for those that don't necessarily speak the same way we do, bugs. And um, and so I um, had mentioned to our community, you know, that we would be able to to better support not only bees but additional pollinators um, if we started working on a pollinator pollinator habitat restoration program. And so we launched that last year, and it's um, it's been really awesome to see. We've had a lot of positive response from our students, um, and we've been able to uh, start implementing what we call pollinator floral oases. And so we have different pockets around campus where we've put some strategic plantings, a lot of native plants, but also um, drought tolerance and locally acclimated plantings to better support all the different pollinators. Now, Melanie, we're getting a lot of calls from folks that are interested in what they can do to support monarchs and their habitats. And can anyone turn a space like a backyard or a garden into a pollinator space? Oh, most definitely. And even for those who live, um, say, in urban areas and do not have, you know, a backyard or even a patio, um, container gardens are great, even putting them in windowsills or just right outside the door, um, you can turn any container into a mini garden of sorts and plants um, bearing flowers and even vegetables and food crops. You know, for a lot of um, indigenous peoples and especially for the programming that we do here at IAIA, which is, you know, taking traditional ecological knowledge, but also uh, pairing it with what we call Western sustainable agriculture science where appropriate, um, there's, there's a lot that can be really promoted that that keeps us in this contemporary realm, but also really um, pays homage and honors our ancestral knowledge as well. And so planting a variety of flowers that are meaningful for the space, but also can be used um, sort of multi-use, whether it's for um, medicine and also for um, various art projects, whether it's for dyes or even for weaving. There's a lot of different plants that can be planted for pollinators and for, for stewards. Now, this pollinator program at IAIA, are you folks seeing good outcomes? We are. We did our first pollinator strip last year, and now we're up to, I think, close to five. Um, and our student crew has been really awesome to help maintain them. We do um, a lot of our own seed collection here from wildflowers, but also from the varying plants that we grow. And then we're able to do projects like making seed balls with students um, and then having you know special events where we get to go out and plant them and, and students help to maintain them. Um, so yeah, we've really seen it grow. We've been able to uh, make some solitary bee nest blocks. Um, we have plans to make also some bat nest, nesting blocks and we have um, a new what we call our thunder bee apiary where we also have some honey bee hives. And with that, when you get better pollination in general, you get um, a better seed set, and when you get a better seed set, you get higher germination rates. And so it basically feeds into itself where you're getting um, stronger plants with better seeds that then are able to grow more habitat for more pollinators. So we're, we're really seeing an increase in those numbers slowly, right? But it, it is happening, and it's, um, it's really awesome to see. Yeah, it's great to know. Let's go back to the phones now. We've got Andrew listening on KISU in Pocatello, Idaho. Andrew, you're on the air. Hi, thanks. 
Yeah, I had a question. About, I want to say, 30 years ago, I, as a kid, remember it's almost like a monarch mass migration event is what it felt like. It was just seemed like there was hundreds of them passing through for about a day or two. Uh, is that is that common? Is that i just kind of curious about what the visual of an actual monarch migration, migration looks like. It, it only happened once. I was a kid. Maybe I maybe I imagined it. I hope not, but I have a distinct recollection of it. I just wonder if that was kind of an atypical, unique experience that I had. Andrew, thanks for that call. Melanie, can you give us some more insight on in terms of what a, a monarch migration looks like? Andrew just gave us that vivid description of what he saw when he was a young a young child. Gosh, I could only imagine just how that imprinted into his memory, right? You know, yeah, um, yeah. such a beautiful thing to see. And yeah, um, a lot of different animals, um, monarchs included, use uh, sort of a magnetic compass to to create these sort of super highways in the sky, right, where they are migrating. And I think, um, you know, depending on where you're at, there might be, you know, a more sort of uh, used route than others. But we don't know a lot about some of these highways, at least science doesn't know a lot about it. So they're learning about it and, and coming to see, you know, what's interacting or what's affecting those highways. Um, but as, um, as Jane mentioned, you know, a lot of it does have to do with habitat. And that comes from the soil up, really. If we have um, healthy soil, we'll be able to grow healthy plants. And then these plants will be able to feed all these varying uh, pollinator relatives. And so I think um, hopefully if folks can really focus a lot more on rebuilding habitat or revitalizing these spaces. Um, Marlene had also um, talked about uh, the milkweed that she uses in her art, and there had been a question about different kinds of milkweeds, and there's a lot of wonderful resources um, out there, especially online, you know, via the internet. Um, you can find different listings, some that are through the federal government, other through local organizations. There's um, a group that's actually called Tribal Alliance for Pollinators. That's also based in Oklahoma, and they mm -hmm. do a lot of um, really great workshops and work. There's also um, Farmers for Mar Monarchs. And for those locally, the New Mexico Beekeepers Association, even though they, their focus is with beekeepers, they actually have put out a, a newer statement and policy called um, the Pollinator Protection uh, Program. And what it really is looking at is trying to uh, emphasize the need for rebuilding habitat and healthy habitat for all pollinators as well. That was Melanie Kirby. She is an, a bee expert at the Institute for American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. Let's talk now with another artist about the significance of monarch butterflies, Kevin Poirier, speaking with us from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. He's an Oglala Lakota buffalo horn artist. Kevin, welcome back to Native America Calling. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> what's your question? <laughs> no, it's great. Great to talk to you, Kevin. And uh, well, I'm really interested to learn more about you. A couple of years ago, you were named a monarch hero by the World Wildlife Fund. Wow. How did you earn that title, Kevin? Um, I guess I, I've been so interested in monarch butterflies for 30 years. Um, I, I had before I became an artist, I was so addicted to drugs and alcohol till I was 30 years old. And um, after I'd sobered up, I was searching to find out who I was. And so I started um, participating in our ceremonies that we have. And one of the ceremonies we have is uh, Hamblecha, where we go and seek a vision. And, and during, during 
my quest for this vision as at Bear Butte. And I was remember it was early in the one morning and I was hungry and cold and and uh there's just the daylight, this big butterfly just came and just floated around and around and around me. And and I had I just stopped and I just watched this butterfly. It was so quiet and and it was just hanging around. And I never thought anything of it because it was real. It wasn't like a mystical dream of, you know, buffalo and stuff like that. But and I hadn't after the ceremony, the medicine man would interpret our dreams for us. And I never said anything because it was I had just seen a just a butterfly. And um all the rest of the summer, every day I was having these butterflies coming to me. And it was just it was really unreal how I, these butterflies were always coming to me. And finally, I, I, I asked the, the medicine man during the ceremony again, late, like six months later, I told him what happened. And he said that it was a real powerful vision and that it, every time I would see a butterfly, it would remind me of our life ways. And it would represent love and family. And, um, and I see butterflies still after 25 years of, you know, of, of times when no one else will see them and they'll all look up or see a shadow and there'll be a monarch butterfly following me around or, or right there with me. And, and so I was also, during all of my research as an artist, there's a real famous photograph of Sitting Bull with a felt hat on and he has a monarch butterfly in his hat band. And I, and I, did a portrait of Sitting Bull on, on a couple of my buffalo horn spoons that I make. And, and I had surrounded him with monarch butterfly wings. You know, it was really a cool piece. I just felt like he was surrounded by love. And, um, but I never really knew what that butterfly in his hat, man, hat band meant to him until a few years ago I met one of his descendants. And I was telling her my story and, and, um, and she said that he wore those that monarch butterfly in his hat band to honor them because they used to come to him and tell him stories. And and you know, it, it just gave me shivers because, you know, I, I I I've never heard a story. I've experienced them over and over and over every day. Um, but i I'm still waiting to hear that story. And I guess in my artwork, the buffalo horn work, you know, it, it's the buffalo horn of black. And so I just add orange sandstone and white mother pearl, and it makes a beautiful, lifelike um, image of a monarch butterfly. And I've probably half my inventory a lot of times when I go to a, a show are monarch butterflies. And so, Kevin, yeah, that's I'm, why, um, good. Uh, I'm just transfixed by your story, uh, the Sitting Bull connection, and, and Marlena alluded to that too, uh, Sitting Bull's connection to the monarch. And and you mentioned how that monarch black goes goes really well with the buffalo horn color. And, and, and what about some of your other pieces that, that you uh, devote to celebrating the legacy of the monarch? Um, well, I did a, a whole buffalo horn belt with like um, probably monarch butterflies just cluster clusters of them and and um, I uh, I think my favorite piece was the portrait I did of Sitting Bull 
um, you know, that portrait's a really sad image. It was during a time when we were being put on reservations. We were losing our life ways, and the buffalo had been killed. And, and it's just a real sad image to me. And so when I surrounded him with all these monarch wings, it was like a photo from, from when they gather in Mexico. And sitting bulls in the center, I, I just, it just made me feel, feel like, um, like he was home. Like I had placed him in a safe place. And um, it's just a real powerful piece because of, of his connection to the monarchs. And, and I make uh, monarch earrings. I make um, monarch um, wings, uh, earrings, um, necklaces. Um, I've done a monarch on a thimble made out of buffalo horn. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost every that I've ever carved on a buffalo horn has included a monarch almost. Well, Kevin, I know that Santa Fe Indian Market is coming up next week, and you're going to be headed down to New Mexico for that. And you also won Best of Show at Indian Market back in 2018. Now, was that a, a monarch butterfly piece that won that award? Um, actually, that was uh, the year when um, uh, women were really speaking up the Me Too movement. And, um, and, and so I had, had uh, been to Standing Rock, and, and I've, I've noticed a lot of the women that there was a lot of the people that would get up with the microphone and the bullhorns and speak and everything. And, and, but, but in the back, there was always, always women chopping wood and, and working and feeding thousands of people. And we have that here at home, too, you know, the women who don't get recognized a lot and who are supporting the communities and so I wanted to do something to honor women and I was I remember my wife said do something for the women and so I picked out uh, uh, eight different women from different communities from Alaska to California all over the country and I, I did portraits and then behind them I carved and inlaid real colorful designs that um, I contacted them all and they all wanted a certain design behind their portrait and, and mm-hmm. that's what what one best in show. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us and uh, learning more about your art, how you incorporate the, the monarch butterfly and, and your, your stories and, and your, just all your knowledge on the history and the traditions there of your Lakota people. And, and I want to wish you well on your travels down to New Mexico next week. Folks, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But to our guests, Kevin Poirier, Melanie Kirby, Jane Breckenridge, Marlena Miles, thank you all for sharing your knowledge about the monarch butterfly and its connection to Native culture. Join us next week for another lineup of discussions about Indigenous issues and topics, including two live broadcasts from the 100th Santa Fe Indian Market. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. We had help this week from Roman Garcia. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the Distribution Director. Bob Peterson is the Network Manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our National Underwriting Sales Director. Antonia Gonzalez is the Anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our Chief Operations Officer. The President and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a safe weekend. First baby, don't know where to start? CMS programs cover prenatal services. Enroll today. 
Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.